This is CHUO 89.1 FM. Welcome to another discussion on the Mosaic. Here, we take a look at the current issues and trends in Ottawa through in-depth analysis and discussion. From social justice to music and art, we're covering it all to highlight the voices of our diverse community. Today, we take a look at OC Transpo's new initiatives and discuss the agency's budget deficit. We'll hear from the Transit Commission and local advocates. Then we'll look into a local book launch. We speak with the German author about how she broke away from the hateful views of her father, who had been indoctrinated by Nazi ideology. And we'll hear from one of Ovarian Cancer Canada's top fundraisers about her journey and gratitude marking five years cancer-free. I'm Arya Gunde. Stick around for all that and more coming up on The Mosaic. Have you ever woken up, rushed to get ready, and ran to the bus stop just to wait for a delayed bus to the O-Train? Then, when you get there, you find out the O-Train is closed for maintenance. This is a pretty common experience for OC transport riders, and the agency is projecting an over $40 million deficit for this year. They're also trying to regain ridership and trust, because even after three years, ridership is only 70% of what it was before COVID. Uh, my name is Wilson Lowe. I'm the city councillor for Ward 24 Barhaven East here in Ottawa. I also sit on the transit commission, but for city council, I started out as a, an OC transit bus operator. Councillor Lowe drove buses for around seven years before becoming an OC transport communications officer. Last week, OC transport launched its tap and ride initiatives for all buses and LRT stations. So uh, Tap and Go is uh, somewhat an expansion of the Presto program, and it kind of allows customers to pay for the bus with their credit cards on board all the buses. This gives riders the option of using their credit card, where previously you could only pay with one online. So this expands the uh, payment options available to both residents and tourists who want to use our public transit system, who don't necessarily carry cash or have a Presto, and it uh, makes transit a little, a little more accessible. Part of this initiative involves a fare capping system. What this does is basically stops charging you for a day if you reach the price of a day pass or for the month if you reach the monthly pass price. Equity seeking groups have been calling for this fare capping for absolutely years. So that's really exciting. It's also exciting that you can use your credit card because it's good for tourists. It's good for intermittent users. The whole relying on Prestos was always a, a bit of a challenge. So we're pleased with that. That was transit advocate Carrie Elliott speaking. Well, my name is Carrie Glines Elliott. I'm a public servant in Ottawa, but uh, I'm also the co-founder and one of the board members of the Ottawa Transit Riders, which is an advocacy group in Ottawa that tries to be the voice of transit riders. We try to listen to what people are saying and then present the arguments to city council and advocate for better transit based on what actual riders want. These initiatives come as the city attempts to cover the major deficit within OC Transport. The biggest background to this is the fact that OC Transpo started the year with a $39 million deficit. Uh, and that's kind of the result of three years of not adapting our service to, to these new travel patterns. And that's kind of where we ended up now. And, you know, we can't keep cutting service and we can't keep raising fares to try to cover that deficit because at some point we're going to lose all of our customers. Elliot expands on how OC Transpo got into this situation in the first place. Well, sadly, we've had austerity budgets for years and OC Transport has been cut, 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 cut. And we used to say before the LRT came in that all the focus on the LRT was cannibalizing the bus routes in order to serve the LRT. And it was hoped that when the LRT was running, that it would solve some of our problems. And because the LRT has been such a problem, it's just compounded the problem. So we already had problems with the bus routes. Now we can't rely on our train either. 
When it comes to potential funding aid, hearing back from the government can be a very time-consuming process. Yeah, I guess technically you can call it a waiting game. Anytime we need to ask for funding from any level of government, it really is a waiting game. Lowe says OC Transpo's track record since the pandemic warrants the province's hesitation with funding. Yes, we're waiting and, and of, of course I'm going to hope for some funding, but at the same time, like if we're taking some accountability and responsibility for this, we're, we sort of dug ourselves into this hole. Lowe also points to some issues out of the Transit Commission's control though. Issues like bus driver shortages or aging vehicles that need replacement are all operational costs that the government won't be funding, according to Elliot. The province and the feds, they like to cut ribbons. Politicians like to cut ribbons. So they're happy to pay for capital costs in that they would like to give you money for like phase two or phase three of the LRT, but they're not keen on giving money for operational costs. And that's the big ticket item Mm. that the municipality struggles with. The city of Ottawa has to pay the operational costs. Councillor Lowe says with the leadership of Rene Amokar, they're pulling themselves out of the hole that they're currently in. According to the councillor, OC Transpo's current management is much more open than it previously was. Elliot points to Mayor Sutcliffe's promises on taxes as a point of pain for the city's transit. Basically what happens is it's not allowed for municipalities to run a deficit. You have to balance the budget. There's provincial legislation that requires that. We have a new rookie mayor who more or less told people that he was going to hold the line regarding tax increases. And so he convinced a lot of city councillors to vote for a budget that had a hole in it. It had a $39 million hole. And I don't know what he told people in private, but he sort of seemed to imply that he was expecting some money to come from upper levels of government. And that didn't happen. So the provincial government didn't give them money. The federal government didn't give them money. Their estimates for ridership were laughable. I mean, just absolutely ridiculous and didn't happen. So it seems to me that it was a bit of a fantasy budget and I'm annoyed that city councils voted for it. We need to be grown-ups. We need to be adults and we need to know that costs are going up and the budget has to be realistic moving forward. The Transit Commission is meeting today to present OC Transpo updates on rail, bus, and paratransport. They'll also be discussing the capital budget and initiatives like on-demand transit service. Barbara Leimsner was born in Germany and moved to Canada at a young age. She's been a social justice advocate since the 60s. Over the years in Ottawa, she's taken a feminist and political activist stance against racism, homophobia, and transphobia. She was a founding member of the Pro-Choice Network in Ottawa. In the 80s, she spoke out against KKK members on TV. Last weekend, the local activist released her debut memoir at the Ottawa Public Library Sunnyside branch. The story focuses on her journey to free herself from the hateful views of her Nazi-sympathizing father. Here's CHUO's Lauren Ralston speaking with Barbara Leimsner about the book's launch. On Saturday, you had this book launch for your new book, this memoir, Quitting the Master Race. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Uh, Yes. So the book launch was the official kickoff for this book. And I think it was a great success because I was able to fill the room. I got lots of good feedback from the people who were there about how they were receiving the book and so on. Yeah, it was a, it was a very successful event. It was interesting the disparate groups that came out, including everything from uh, people concerned about the rise of the far right to people who had lived through the Second World War, possibly some people of German ancestry and so on. It was very interesting. We, we had a question and answer session that raised a lot of really good questions. 
Hmm. And, and what were some of those significant questions? Well, people wanted to know, for example, was my father a Holocaust denier? That was one question. Also, what was the nature of the German community in Canada in the 1950s? You know, were there significant pockets of fascists? That was pretty interesting. Questions about how to oppose the far right today. The balance between compassion for my father and anger in the book. Did I achieve that balance? How did I achieve it? That kind of thing. Mm. And I'm sure you've got a lot of answers sprinkled in the book as well. So I would like it if you could tell me a little bit about it and that journey that you went through to kind of free yourself from the hate that you encountered as a child. All right, well, let's start talking about my immigrant story. This book is about me as a kid. I came to Canada with my parents when I was just about four years old. And of course, immediately, my father having been so inculcated and indoctrinated with horrific fascist ideology when he was in the military and also before the war even began, started to share those same views with my sister and I. And they were racist views, they were ultra-nationalist views, there were certainly notions about our own superiority as pure-blooded German people. And it was, at first, I craved my father's approval as a little kid. I didn't really know any better. And it's a bit horrifying to think that, you know, young kids are very impressionable and easily led, especially when they look up to their parents. And so I was, I was no exception. And it took several years going to school, of course, hearing what other parents were saying or not saying. For these kind of uh, ideas that I'd grown up with to jar in my head with what I was learning at school. And also, I think key is the civil rights movement in the 1960s was starting to become, uh, you know, in full throttle. That was critical because I, you know, my teachers and everyone else supported the struggle for equality for African-Americans. And I was generally sympathetic and so on. And yet my father's racist ideas said, oh, black people, they're at the bottom of the heap. And also that the races shouldn't mix. So white people and black people shouldn't mix because of course that had been Hitler's uh, notion. Aryans and Jews, Aryans and black people and so on. And so these ideas started to jar in my head. But I sort of, you know, I wasn't necessarily preoccupied with them and so on. So it really wasn't until I got to university, I would say, and started to really see, well, first of all, I was learning completely different things in my classes. And I had roommates from all over the world and friends from all over the world. And I, at some point, concluded, which I write about in the book, that my father was, and I say, completely full of shit. <laughs> so I also was myself caught up and became an activist in the 60s in the student movement, uh, which was happening on the campuses here in Canada. Early 70s, when I got to Carleton, there were there still a big wave of progressive movements. There was women's movement, all kinds of things you could do and encounter and be involved in. And so I was in there like a dirty shirt. <laughs> And I was really drawn to left-wing activism, which I think made all the difference. Mm. 
And and so like during that Q&A period, you mentioned that people asked you about, is it hard? You want to sympathize for your father, but he's got these awful Nazi sympathizing views. You confront this painful history and you've refused to leave out the hard stuff. And you wrote that amnesia is too convenient. So what was mm -hmm. it like for you to personally confront your family's past like this? Um, it was, I won't uh, say that it wasn't very, very difficult. Even when I started writing the book and I wasn't necessarily clear exactly where I was going with these stories, I really harbored a big knot of shame in my own body. You know, shame about that past, my father's views, and also guilt to, to some extent. And I think that's not uncommon for my generation, the post-war generation. And I wasn't sure I wanted to go public and tell this story. I had started writing it in 2016 after taking a course at Carleton in the Learning and Retirement Program or the Continuous Education Program called Remembering My Father. And that was the year that Donald Trump got elected. And if you recall in 2017, there was a Night the Right rally at Charlottesville in Virginia, where violent fascists, neo-Nazis, Ku Klux Klan members, Proud Boys, Heritage Front folks, and so on, were coming together, including from Canada, were coming together and waving torches and chanting all kinds of rubbish like Jews will not replace us and all of this. And Donald Trump, the white nationalist in the White House, was saying that they were fine people, just fine people. And you know, I think it was then that I thought, wow, can this happen again? Is it possible that we're going to see a resurgence of this kind of, you know, neo-fascist kind of movements and populist movements? And uh, I was horrified and it created a sense of urgency for me. I thought, you know, if I have any doubts that my family's story matters or telling the story matters, I need to just push ahead and get this book done and get it out there because I think it does matter. Even though it's one family story and it's an author probing into the past and looking at parents and how they became indoctrinated ordinary people like my parents. They were not high up Nazi officials. They were just ordinary folks like your neighbor and they became indoctrinated and bought on to a horrendous ideology. And we see this now in the States and, and in Canada here, where large numbers of millions of people believe that an election was stolen. Conspiracy theories, lies, uh, Obama wasn't born in the US and on and on. There's the notion of a great white race being replaced by deliberately flooding Mexicans across the border and immigrants into the country and refugees and so on. These are lies and they're becoming more mainstream. And that is exactly what happened in the 1930s when preposterous notions, anti-Semitic notions and so on entered the mainstream. Wow. So this book comes at a really important time. So in your years and years of activism, you're finding that today there is a very significant resurgence of right-wing extremism? Yes, I, I think so. And we don't have to look far. We had, I mean, here in Ottawa, for example, we had the convoy, which was led. It was not everyone in it was uh, by any stretch, uh, you know, far right or fascist or anything like that. At the same time, the people who organized it 
certainly were. They had definite links to far-right groups and ultranationalist groups and so on. And it also showed how groups like them can use a crisis like the pandemic to mobilize large numbers of fearful, angry people into the streets in a reactionary way. And that's what we saw with the convoy. So uh, similarly, I mean, I participated this summer in two protests um, when the far right came to a picket at Broad Street School and they also picketed at the National Arts Centre to prevent parents with their children from going in to hear Drag Queen Story Hour, which has been happening here in town for 10 years. And so seeing those, those emboldened, far-right, in-your-face kind of actors here in Ottawa, it tells us that no country is immune, including here in our own city, from the pernicious effects of people who will take advantage of the fear and insecurity and anger that a lot of people feel and project them to the right. Mm. So this polarization that's going on, this emboldened hate, people look back at the Holocaust towards the 30s where you say that kind, these kind of sentiments were happening. And people like to say never again. But after your research and analysis, how can we prevent hate like this from really spreading? Yes, I think that's a really, really good question. And it's actually the key question to some extent. <laughs> I think, first of all, people do need to get informed and realize that when they are getting lies, you know, online lies about all kinds of issues, including, for example, that trans people are groomers and pedophiles or, or, or some such nonsense that people really get informed and look behind the scenes at what really is happening. So that's the first thing. But the second thing really is, and what I really stress in my book, is that for ordinary people, you know, most, most people are not the extreme far right that we're seeing right now. But for ordinary people, really the key thing is to see and to experience large community mobilization whenever these kind of far right actors show their faces and march in cities or hold events or so on. I think they need to be opposed at every turn. And also that means people organizing through their unions, if they're working in a unionized workplace, through their workplaces, through their community associations, through their universities, and actually making sure that there's a broad-based community anti-fascist response. What we saw in the 1930s and what enabled Hitler was the passive bystanders, the people who weren't big high up monkey mucks in the Nazi party, but you know, and many people did support the Nazis. There's no question about it. But there were also large numbers of people who stood by and let the fascists run their course. It, it also has to be said that once Hitler got into power, and this is in the history books, but that the first people who were in the concentration camps were the anti-fascist opponents of the regime, who were numerous. So leaders of other political parties, 
Democratic Party, Social Democratic Parties, the Communist Parties, and so on. Those were the people who were the first people who were locked up in the camps because Hitler believed in exterminating his so-called enemies. Many of them perished, and it became much more difficult to mount resistance, even though there was still low-level resistance, once that party got into power. And so, I mean, that's a lesson from history, too. We have to just prevent them from ever taking the reins. Mm. And that, to me, it connects to this this um, quote that you have in an excerpt from your book where you're writing about your dad, you're figuring out about his complacency and sympathy for Nazi ideology. And you write that he was a product of his times, but he was not a passive victim. Right. Can you speak a little bit more on that as that complacency as being linked with violence? Mm-hmm. My research really helped me explain how my dad, growing up where he did in that particular region in northern Moravia, in the former Czechoslovakia, how people in that region became ultra-nationalist and ended up supporting Hitler, even more so than some people in West Germany proper did. So I, I yes, I came to understand the propaganda that he was exposed to, what it was like to be a soldier for seven years in Hitler's army of annihilation, which was brutal. So yes, I could understand this, but my father always had choices. Everybody does. You know, I said at the in the introduction to the book, I'm not trying to exonerate my father. There was no reconciliation between my love for my father, you know, my German papa, and the authoritarian views that he held. That that those two things cannot be reconciled. He was, yes, a victim of his times, but he was also an actor in history, as we all are. We all are actors in history. And so it wasn't like people got swept away into a big wave and none of them made choices. They all had to make choices every day about supporting the regime or not, or passive resistance. You know, I think that's important. I tried to portray him and I think I succeeded eventually, you know, with some humanity, rediscovered the humanity that he had with some compassion, but that's different from exonerating him from holding those abhorrent ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think the reviews can attest to that depiction. I was looking them through and it looks good. Um, You're earning major praise for thoughtful honesty. What were some of your fears and hopes when you were writing it, though? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess, I mean, there were definitely lots. <laughs> I would say, you know, one of the fears would be that, you know, maybe some people would misunderstand writing a book like this as an attempt to exonerate the uh, the parent or exonerate the ideas. But that, I think it's very clearly an anti-fascist book. I hope, you know, no one could mistake that. I'm hoping that the book one finds a broader readership, that it reaches people who both are concerned about the rise of the far right today and those who have some experience with that history and maybe had parents or grandparents in the war and, you know, want to discuss the lessons that have come from that history that may have been lost to a newer generation. So it's really about having discussions and hoping to generate conversations. At the same time, I'm also hoping to mobilize people to some extent, to convince people that standing by 
and watching because it doesn't affect me right now is not an option if we want to preserve the liberal democracy that we live in. It can be easily lost and without people standing up, it will be lost. Mm. Well, Barbara, thank you for taking the time with me today. Thank you, Lauren. I appreciate it. That was CHEO's Lauren Rolston speaking with Barbara Leimsner about her debut memoir, Quitting the Master Race. It can be found at independent bookstores in Ottawa or at Chapters and Amazon. September is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. Ovarian Cancer Canada is the only national charity dedicated to overcoming ovarian cancer. They held an international walk of hope last weekend. Many gathered at Andrew Hayden Park in Nepia to participate and raise funds for the cause. Tracy Meads is one of the top fundraisers of this year's walk. When we spoke with her, she had almost raised $19,000. Now, she's raised over $20,000. She's been fundraising for the cause for years. Being cancer-free, she speaks out about her gratitude and desire to help others. Here's CHO's Lauren Ralston speaking with Tracy Meads. Um, this walk of hope for Ovarian Cancer Canada that's coming up on Sunday. How are you feeling? Yeah, well, it feels like it's going to be a bit of a breeze for me this year because the last three years I've actually done marathons as part of my fundraising for the Walk of Hope because it's been run virtually for the last three years. And I was in the middle of training for the Boston Marathon when I found out I had cancer in the first place. So, uh, so it was kind of near and dear to my heart to not let cancer grind me down and to get back and get to Boston and get that that race run. Wow. So this isn't your first rodeo? <laughs> no. This is literally just a walk in the park. <laughs> and so this year for you, it also marks five years without cancer, which is amazing. Um, how do you feel? Yeah, as I said, I'm, I'm super lucky in the first place to have found my cancer at stage one. So many other women are, are not lucky. It is a huge killer of women as far as cancers go in Canada. So I've kind of tried to make it a bit of a mission to raise as much money as I can every year so that they can get that research done and get better screening in place so that it's no longer a death sentence like some of the other cancers are. Mm -hmm. and, and so for this year's Walk of Hope, up to right now, you've raised almost $19,000. How did you do that? Uh, it's not me, honestly. I'm super introverted. It's my amazing, adorable, wonderful husband who is out there sending emails to all of our friends and family and uh, bullying them or, you know, strong arming them into uh, donating money year over year. Mm -hmm. And then I guess, what's the goal for you? This is a lot of hard work, this fundraising, and it's an ongoing journey. Um, so what, what motivates you? I feel so lucky to catch mine at stage one. I want to get the word out there that you can't ignore those, those random symptoms that we women of a certain age all experience because they can lead to something else. I mean, I was super lucky. I had an amazing doctor who, who wouldn't let it go. She said, we're going to test for that. And lo and behold, I end up with a 12 centimeter tumor that ends up being cancer. So if I can get the message out there to other women to be aware of what's going on in their body so that if they have this disease or this cancer that they can catch it early like I did, that's that would be amazing. What was your experience with ovarian cancer like? It's pretty pretty um, scary when 
you go for that ultrasound that your doctor bullies you into going for. You think it's going to be normal. You're like, this is in the way of my training for this race. And all of a sudden you've got this 12 centimeter object in your, in, in your, in your abdomen. And then you're like, is it cancer? Is it not cancer? I can't, I don't want to say I have cancer if I don't have cancer. And it was, again, it's super awkward for me because the day I found out I didn't have cancer anymore, it was the same day I found out that I did have cancer. So yeah, it was different. Wow. And so if there's anything that you can say to the people out there, the people who should be looking out for signs of ovarian cancer, what would that be? Well, if you're a woman of a certain age, which I know you're not because you're way too young, you know, again, there's super random symptoms that you just can't ignore. Things like being a little extra bloated, a little extra bunged up, you know, when you get cramps that are different than sort of your normal cramps. You can't just brush those off. You should get them checked, get an ultrasound, get some peace of mind to find out that nothing's wrong. Mm -hmm. And how has your support been through this fundraising journey? It sounds like it's something that you've you've done a lot before, but who are, who's your biggest cheerleaders, I guess? Well, again, my husband, he's the most amazing person on the planet for me. I think between the two of us, we've, we've donated about $10,000 this year and last year and maybe even the year before. You know, we're close to that 20000 mark this year. Last year, we were actually at $29,000 and we were a top fundraising team in, in the country. So we've got an amazing group of colleagues, former colleagues, friends, family, and they're kind enough that every time we send them an email each year, they get on the website and they donate, which is just great. Looking forward to this this walk of hope on Sunday. What are you most looking forward to? Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure because, as I said, the last three years it's all been virtual. So it's been a number of years since we've all been in person. I spent some time going through some of the other ladies' donation fundraising pages just to sort of get an idea of who else is out there. And I mean, some of their stories are just heart wrenching. So um, I'm kind of looking forward to you know putting a face to the story and you know just giving them a hug and telling them I really hope that their journey ends up the same as mine. That's mm-hmm. a huge support system. So lastly, for people who are listening, um, how can they support the cause? They can, you know, get onto the website and donate. Just pick a random person and donate. They can come out to the walk. And I think they're having walks all over the country in different cities. Even if you just want to come out and walk, that's, that's a big support as well. All right. Those are all the questions I had for you today. Did you have anything else that you wanted to add? No. Did I do okay? You did great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That was CHO's Lauren Ralston speaking with Tracy Meads. We reached her over Zoom in Calgary. And that's it for today's episode of The Mosaic. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can listen to this episode and previous episodes on CHO.FM. I'm Arya Gunde and we'll see you next week.